0: Climate change is already hitting home here in suburbia.
1: And everyone is wondering what coastal communities will look like with more violent storms and sea level rise. This is Higher Ground.
0: I'm J.D. Allen. And I'm Sabrina Garone.
1: We're taking a journey across coastal New York to communities that are preparing to adapt to climate change. These solutions might give us the best chance at survival and help save the places millions of people call home.
0: Or we may discover that retreating from the sea is the only way forward. There's a lot at stake. In the 1950s, the American dream was made iconic here in these suburbs.
1: White picket fences, manicured lawns, and a ranch for a family of four. That are built near the shore. The federal plan is to rebuild America's worn-out infrastructure.
0: It's going to cost billions to protect the communities we'll visit. Coming up next, we get to higher ground.
1: Distributed by APM, American Public Media. Some people breathe in the beach air on vacation and dream for their entire life that they can one day live on the water. For Dan Palera, he's got it. We're on a small boat he captains zipping around a salt marsh in
2: coastal New York. You know what happens? It's in your veins. The salt runs through your veins. Once you're addicted uh to the salt life you really you can't get away from it
1: dan is a retired bayman who admits he's lucky enough to dock his boat outside his home on a canal nearby he's also a self-taught landscape painter the marshland and these houses built right up onto the bay are his muse
2: beauty this is just absolutely gorgeous Look at the way this little bit of water catches the blue sky reflection, goes in and mixes with the green. You know, when the sun sets in this spot, you have this marsh lit up with a golden color from the sun reflecting. It's just such a variety of beautiful contrasts along the way. It's paradise in my eyes. (laughs) This is Long Island.
0: Long Island. Yeah, people like me and you, JD, who are from here are known for their accents.
1: Hey, Sabrina, you're talking about the land of Billy Joel, the Great Gatsby, and the Hamptons here.
0: Yeah, but what this area is also known for is its beaches.
1: Jones Beach, Fire Island, and Montauk.
0: This is some of the most developed coastline in all of the U.S., and that means millions of people here, including Dan, are increasingly vulnerable to sea level rise and violent storms.
2: Going to show you this little spot where the water goes in to the marsh. We're on a tour with Captain
0: Dan to explore the long standing tradition of living by the water and perhaps why it's worth saving in the face of climate change.
3: Baymen used to build the bay houses here so that they could go clamming and oystering and, and duck hunting. Nancy
1: Solomon is our guide. She's ready for a day out on the water with a big hat, sunscreen, and a sense of adventure.
3: Over the years, the marshlands have been eroded, so now many of the bay houses that you see, they used to have easily several hundred feet of land in front of them. Now they are on the shoreline. That's what climate change and marshland erosion, you know, looks like.
0: Nancy is a public folklorist, and today she's taking us back to the 19th century when the houses we're looking at were first built, Cottages on platforms raised by pilings above the marshland. Homes on stilts,
1: essentially, hovering
2: precariously above the water. You know, if you go on one of the bay houses and get inside and look out the windows, man, you have a 360-degree panoramic view of open salt marsh, which is just, just breathtaking, breathtaking. Really is at any time of the year. We're
0: going to take it up a little bit, guys. Nancy and Dan hold on to their hats as we pick up speed.
2: Just hang on. It's not going to be crazy. We're going to take a nice ride. The boat
1: zips around these wooden beams sticking out of the marshland. At one time, they were the supports of a hundred bay houses on the water.
0: But there's also been plenty
3: of new development here. So the house on the right is a brand new bay house. It is much larger than the other bay houses that you see here. They say when you build up too high... We're building up into the wind zone. We are constantly reminding people that the next storm could take all of this away. You know, they know that it, this could all disappear. And as we stand in front of this deserted dock, there is no house at the end of this dock, that reminds you how fragile this ecosystem
0: really is. In fact, Nancy tells us, in the past, generations of families have rebuilt bay houses out here in the marshland, storm after storm.
2: Dan says he understands that instinct. You could never take me away from this environment, you know, put me upstate or interior of the country. I just, I I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it, you know. Right now, this is my umbilical cord. You know, this keeps me connected to life.
1: It's pretty much as, I guess, Long Island as you can get.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Long Island has... A little bit of different flavors. You know, you have the North Fork, which is the Long Island is like a
1: two-pronged barbecue fork jutting east from New York City. Hence, the North
2: Fork and South Fork, where the Hamptons are.
0: I prefer to think of it like the tail of a fish.
2: The South Shore, basically from here all the way to Montauk, has quite a bit of salt marsh.
1: Sheltered by barrier islands. They're pretty much city-sized sand dunes that protect the coast. People live and work there, too.
0: Later, we'll visit those barrier islands and find out how they're responding to the threat of rising tides. We'll also head to Montauk itself to find out about a long-standing plan to harden its
3: shoreline. There is no such thing as a waterfront house that is impervious to climate change. It's recognizing the process and having the knowledge of what to do that to make things better for everybody you know um, there's a strong value of common building practices that we have lost with architects and zoning codes and building permits we have lost those traditional building practices that used to be the staple of all houses on long island in in the 19th century and you know, even into the early 20th century
1: we end this part of the journey when we reach dan's house On the way down the docks, Nancy points out these huge homes we can see built right up onto the waterfront.
3: You know, they had multi-million dollar homes. How could this happen? They thought they were invincible.
1: The damage Nancy's talking about, one short decade ago, in 2012, Superstorm Sandy hit Long Island.
4: Millions of Americans are still living through the aftermath.
5: Pounding the East Coast with high winds, rain, and
4: overwhelming storm surge. The storm surge crashed through the barrier beaches on Fire Island that usually protect this little town. Flames were whipped up by 80 mile an hour wind gusts. That
5: means for many people, it's been nearly a week without power of struggling to clean up and put the pieces back together. For
0: many here, it was a turning point. It finally forced Long Islanders like us to face up to how vulnerable our lives are to so-called once-in-a-century storms.
1: As we tour the island, we'll see its effect again and again. But new data also shows this extreme weather and its disruption will continue to get more frequent. In 2021, a report to the United Nations found that climate change and extreme weather will intensify over the next 30
0: years. In other words, it's not going to take a century for the next Superstorm Sandy to show up.
1: We're passing through Freeport for lunch. It's a coastal town that, like many others in the face of that forecast, will need to work fast to either harden its defenses against future storms or bow to the floods and retreat.
0: Across the street is Mayor Robert Kennedy.
6: We look at... uh... Superstorm Sandy, we were closed for a year or two. And all the, all the bus- half the business is burnt down here. Uh, the remainder were flooded. We had eight foot of water where we're standing right now, salt water.
1: I saw how Sandy laid waste to communities through my reporting. Floods ripped oil tanks from homes and businesses left floating in the middle of Main Street. Downed electric poles and wires, live with power, sparked blazes across these suburbs.
0: But there's no sign of that now.
1: Some of the improvements that we've seen since Sandy have been a lot of raising of property, both residential and commercial, because if there's going to be eight feet of water up on this uh, wharf here, it's going to,
6: that's going to take out most dining rooms, most first-level storefronts. Some of the new regulations that came into effect post-Superstorm Sandy is if the building had more than 51% damage, the uh, requirement was you must raise to get any funding for it. So most of the buildings you can see down here did receive funds, but they also raised above the required level to prevent flooding. So you see most of the buildings have been lifted up. It's hard. People have are set in their ways. It, it's expensive to go about these projects. You know, it's really up to the individual. Uh, many places wanted to maintain. The integrity of the past 20 years where one of the restaurants down here at every high tide, everybody has to wear boots or sit up on the chair. They just want to maintain that uh, same history and not raise the building. Um, but many of them, as you can see, decided it's financially beneficial to turn around and raise it and have assistance to the federal government to assist in financing it.
0: OK, so thanks to millions in taxpayer dollars that poured in after Sandy, people were able to rebuild their communities. Now, coastal communities all over the place are building higher to get out of the way of rising sea level and climate change.
6: We need to recognize the fact that water is definitely increasing here. We're going to have problems in the future. We have another Sandy. People are going to move out. They're not going to come back a second time. So we have to move forward. We have to protect these neighborhoods. We have to protect the waterfront community.
1: But even with all that effort and expense, it seems almost cavalier to suggest our infrastructure is definitely ready for another hurricane.
7: Climate change is really going to change the future of Long Island and we have to keep that in mind and and not just keep it in mind but get ready.
1: We drive 100 miles about the entire length of Long Island to get to environmentalist Alison Branco in Montauk.
7: There, she
0: tells us about this massive federal plan to pay for the lifting of homes and replacing of sand on beaches to protect entire communities from being washed away. It's known as
7: FIMP. FIMP, it stands for Fire Island to Montauk Point, And it's an Army Corps project that has now been funded by Congress just this past year, which means that the funding for the initial construction is all in place. This project has been going on many, many decades since the Eisenhower administration. Actually, this project has been under discussion. Just
1: just it it was first planned during the Eisenhower administration, but it was
0: just
7: funded in 2021. Yes, that's right. This is I don't know if it's the longest running Army Corps project, but it's got to be in the top 10 for sure.
0: A plan to harden the whole area we're exploring today, put together 70 years ago, has just finally been funded.
1: Had that money been available before Sandy, areas like Freeport,
0: Montauk,
1: and Fire Island could have been better protected.
0: But Allison says in the years since the project was dreamed up, it's been overtaken by reality.
7: My concern is that we're not viewing it as a short-term solution, that we're, people are hoping that this will be a long-term solution, that we will continue to nourish the beach for 30 or 50 years or whatever, and not ever invest in the really important planning to come up with some longer-term solutions. Montauk, unlike a lot of places, is using the time that those projects are giving it to do some more planning for retreating from the coast. If we can't
1: get ahead of this, it means that we're going to have to go elsewhere, that coastal retreat.
7: It's absolutely a hard sell. Um, And I think, you know, the important thing to remember is that it's not the climate scientists that are causing the problem. They're just sort of the messengers.
0: When we come back, Allison tells us that all across the U.S. we're spending tons of money on old plans. Very
1: old plans.
0: To address climate change. Instead, she says we may simply need to
1: embrace the reality that we can't afford to keep building on a vulnerable coastline. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM, American Public Media. I'm J.D. Allen. Welcome back to Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM, American Public Media.
0: And I'm Sabrina Garone. Montauk, a.k.a. The End, is one of the area's more famous downtowns.
1: Literally, it's the end, all the way at the tip of the fishtail. And it's easy to see why people love it out here in the Hamptons. Six-state parks, one of the oldest lighthouses in America.
0: And according to some, the best
7: surfing on the East Coast. Montauk is a very busy place, um, and tourism really is the, the center of the economy here in Montauk. So
0: it's a great place to
1: visit, of course, but also a great place to profit off of all that summer traffic
0: restaurants, gift shops, a massive strip of lodging, and all within a short walk to the beach. We meet environmentalist Allison Branco outside a downtown coffee
7: shop. It's not just one row along the beach. It's many streets, many blocks in all directions that make up this downtown.
1: Allison says for such a busy area, this place is quite fragile, and it could look completely different come the next storm.
7: Montauk is a really vulnerable place, vulnerable to flooding and Um, the erosion that comes along with it um, because of sea level rise, and then also, of course, super vulnerable sticking out at the tip of Long Island, super vulnerable to big hurricanes.
0: The superstorm that Sandy brought was historic.
8: What was significant uh, was the storm surge.
1: Another environmentalist, Kevin McAllister, is with us too and actually lives close by, so he saw Sandy's impact here firsthand.
8: So the actual piling of water into the inland bays and on the coast. Um, I believe it was uh, around seven or nine feet, might have been even greater.
0: All that water didn't come in from the ocean front to Montauk South, where the storm hit, but actually came in on the northern bay side. Kevin says that's important to note.
8: You know, obviously there's ocean beaches for recreational value, but the, you know, the real ecological value is is really on the uh, bay side and the myriad of uh, creeks and harbors that you know support a, a tremendous amount of wildlife and, and uh, really the breadbaskets to the estuary.
0: We take a walk down Hotel Row. Some of them are built right into the dunes immediately behind the public beach area. In their natural form before
1: all that development, these dune systems were vital for storm mitigation.
8: But again, this functions as a natural shock absorber. It is a sand surplus under storm events and wave attack will release that material uh, to the beach, replenishing the beach.
0: So that natural shock absorber that would protect
7: the downtown is hindered. People come to Montauk for the beach. And so the top priority, if we want to see this community continue to thrive into the future, is to find a way to adapt to all these changes while maintaining a nice beach.
1: It would be difficult to just pick up the most prominent parts of downtown and move them somewhere else. But as controversial as that sounds, Kevin says that might be the only option left.
8: You know, I believe that, you know, local government, um, state government should really uh, put forth a decree. You know, we've got 10 or 15 years and we're going to uh, eliminate the development on the beach dune system. And if that requires eminent domain, um, then so be it.
0: Eminent domain, dirty words here on Long Island as they are in plenty of other places around the country, meaning the government can take private property as long as they pay you and decide how it'll be used for public projects like building roads or
1: saving the environment.
0: The goal is to take development out of the areas of greatest threat, so that area in the dunes right on the beach. Planners are
1: proposing rather than just buying
0: people out, a
1: transfer of development rights.
0: So that hotel or restaurant on the property can remain for now, but it won't be able to build or rebuild from that point on.
1: That's certainly not going to be an easy conversation for elected officials to start. On the way out of Montauk, we meet with the guy who's actually in charge of its future, the town supervisor, Peter Van Skoyek.
9: We have an awful lot of real estate that's at risk. In fact, the South Fork of Long Island, I think, has... Uh, among the highest rates of potential loss to tax base due to sea level rise anywhere in the country. So we need to plan ahead.
0: Peter's talking about national flood insurance maps that show the Hamptons have the most property value in jeopardy from coastal flooding as the climate changes.
9: We've um, undertaken a coastal assessment and resiliency planning effort within the town, and we're looking at all of our shorelines, those areas that are most impacted, and how to respond to rising sea level and uh, the potential of increasing storm surge.
1: Congress has now approved funding for the Fire Island to Montauk Point Project, or FIMP. We learned that from Allison Branco at the start of her journey
0: money would go towards beach replenishment, dune restoration, and voluntarily raising homes and businesses. It's similar to a lot of plans being discussed across the country that rely on federal infrastructure dollars.
1: And at one point in time, it seemed like a long-term solution. But with today's accelerated environmental changes, it might not be still viable.
9: We've always felt that it was really an intermediate step and. The idea is that hopefully this will give us enough time to complete planning.
1: Between erosion experts, environmentalists, business leaders, and lawmakers, there are a lot of opinions
9: on what to do.
0: But Peter says all signs are kind of pointing towards the same thing, retreat from the coast. Although he wouldn't put it that way.
9: I think it's unfortunate that some people have dubbed this, you know, coastal retreat. I think retreat is not the right word to use. I think adaptation is the right word. Retreat. Uh, signals failure. And and I don't think it's failure. I think it, it, it's actually an accomplishment uh, if we can adapt in a way that allows our beaches to advance.
1: It's unpopular, but it's just about the only plan on the table.
4: There are a lot of folks who think that the future of Long Island is in creating more vibrant downtowns to create economic activity.
0: That's urban planner Donovan
4: Finn. The other vision, which is the kind of, you know, we don't want this place to be Queen's vision, which is no development, no how, no way. This is a coastal place. And so it is inherently at risk. And so whether you're building in the middle of the island or whether you're building on the coast, you know, building on Long Island comes with, with risks.
0: He says there's a lot to consider to make a lasting change. There's money.
4: Uh, just looking at one town on Long Island, uh, under various sea level rise scenarios, you know we're talking somewhere in the range of 3 to 12 billion dollars right that it would take
1: where
0: people will move
4: one of the problems on long island is there's not really anywhere for them to go we're we're a, we're a place that's pretty much built out
0: social implications
4: the the more affluent you are the easier it is to find a new normal that's pretty similar to the old normal
0: and
1: the big one convincing folks it's necessary. This question about
0: rethinking development keeps popping up all over the place. Because when suburbia was built, climate change was not top of mind. We're on our way to several places on Long Island where our relationship with nature is being challenged in ways big and small. We'll explore the lessons from those places that may redefine our way of life. Take the headwaters
1: of this river, for instance.
0: The Carmens River. We met up once again with environmentalist Kevin McAllister, this time alongside what's called an impoundment basically
1: a man-made lake.
0: And from a distance, it looks like a nice spot for some fishing or kayaking, but up close, it's not so inviting.
8: This is uh, an altered environment, and much of Long Island is.
0: It's straight up nasty. The water is mucky and
1: green. It looks like sludge, and being here is kind of eerie. This place is totally void of any signs of wildlife.
8: Uh, During colonial times, uh, mills were installed, so... We were damming up these streams uh, to you know, create the grist mills. Um, and the result are these large impoundments that have been maintained over the centuries.
0: Since the water here at the impoundment is just sitting still, the sun is heating it like a greenhouse. It's also a breeding
1: ground for invasive plants and pests.
8: But these uh, invasives that like the warm water and also uh, rich uh, sediment soils, you know, you have muck in here ultimately will give rise where they uh, dominate uh, the surface area.
1: The dam was a solution at a time that gave the first European settlers the best chance at survival in this new world.
0: And over the years, it's been more trouble to the environment than maybe it was ever worth.
9: We've lost
8: the importance uh, that is um, of greater importance now just to offset the implications of of warming temperatures.
1: Kevin says here at the Carmans River, just as in Montauk, the only way forward is to allow the area to return to nature.
8: You know, the, the true remedy here is to allow reversion back to stream flow where the impoundment would contract, uh, shrink down, uh, exposing historic wetland soils and what's called the seed bank, uh, the existing seeds that are in these soils. Uh, the emergence of uh, a freshwater marsh would be rapid.
1: We move down the road along the Carmens River below the spillway. It's how the mucky impoundment drains excess water after heavy rain. The controlled release of water from the dam pours into a special riverbed.
0: Kevin says the pollution and the temperature of the water from the impoundment are redefining the wildlife habitat here.
1: There's only one way to really see what he's talking about.
0: So we jump in and we're really dressed to impress. Water waiters will help us hike downstream.
8: Oh, you guys look great. We're ready for uh, some wading and getting into some mud. I'm cautioning you the first 50 feet are, is soft and uh, we gotta keep our equipment dry.
0: Well, here goes nothing. We're hoping to see how centuries of development have accelerated the pace of climate change's impacts today.
1: It's a very bizarre feeling. As we push our way through the river's current, it feels like we're moving in slow motion.
0: Just like Kevin said, the bottom feels mushy.
1: There's a lot of muck from the riverbed getting turned up as we catch up to Kevin.
0: He's got a walking stick. Smart move.
1: So we haven't gotten far at all right now, but immediately there's a difference. The water is actually moving.
8: It's stream flow. This is uh, right where the spillway is delivering and spilling water into the back into the stream corridor. But that um, movement of water, it already looks healthier. Absolutely. Um, flowing water, especially... Flowing water is cold water.
0: This place really is quite beautiful, and there are some more signs of wildlife here compared to the impoundment up top. Oh, look at all the dragonflies.
1: Oh, they're so beautiful. They've got like this... Damselflies. I'm sorry?
8: Damselflies.
1: Damselflies. They've got like these... Jet black winds with this scion kind of body. They are so cool.
8: You know, the insects are so critical in these corridors, you know, for obviously trout in the, you know, the, the hatch as uh, a food source. So it's um, you know, important that we maintain uh, the streams that are in uh, high quality as to the greatest extent possible as natural. You know, the habitat, the wildlife, uh, as well as uh, resiliency in the immediate community with uh, flood attenuation, cooler water, uh, high-quality wetlands restored, wading birds.
0: Kevin has a thermometer. He submerges it to take the river's temperature. Even though this water feels cold for me to walk around in, Kevin says he sees a problem.
8: And the thermometer says? Yeah, about 64 degrees. That's too hot. Um... It, it's on the edge, certainly, uh, and I will tell you that this heats up into the 70s.
0: Native brook trout like the water at about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, so the warming waters have impacted their breeding habitats these days.
1: Remember, the rising temperature is not totally climate change. It's the man-made impoundment baking in the sunlight.
0: And that's not the only reason why the brook trout have issues.
8: Much of this had a greater openness to it. So the corridors for trout to swim, uh, find, you know, uh, gravel bottom and spawning areas. You know, it was important habitat. The excessive sediment has given rise to basically a burst of growth. The vegetation in the stream corridor almost uh, like applying a fertilizer.
0: That sediment contains a lot of
1: nutrients. Great for plants, not so much for the fish. And the overgrowth of plants distributes the flow of water differently. It creates pockets of still, cloudy water.
0: Kevin motions us over to a silt bank, an underwater pile of very fine sediment. He pokes his walking stick into it and a plume of silt emerges.
8: This silt bank is essentially contained, but it absolutely has
0: transformed habitat.
8: Uh, when you consider this area, um, you know, in You know, if it was gravel bottom, that was trout habitat.
0: Kevin has been pushing for the removal of this dam for a long time. He says the faster flow of water through
1: this riverbed would completely rejuvenate this area.
0: And of
8: course, as we've been talking about the propensity of storm events and flooding, 23 acres of wetlands is a a giant sponge in a storm event. So it'll take up that water as opposed to causing um, property damage on waterfront homes and uh, the environmental implications to uh, cold water stream.
0: As passionate an advocate as Kevin is, he acknowledges that people and the environment can also live harmoniously.
1: It might just take a re-evaluation of what nature means for our way of life.
8: As a Long Islander and, and growing up near water, I've always held that Long Islanders are defined by their waters. The environmental benefits from natural systems being intact and functioning, you know, as nature designed, is is so important for you know our, our uh, community lifestyle, you know, our quality of life.
1: The plight of the Carmens River gives us one more example of how a return to nature could benefit communities.
0: To see the effects of a return to nature on a larger scale, we're going to consider a much bigger climate emergency unfolding downstream to the marshlands that connect to the Great South Bay. And the same bay system where we toured the historic bay homes. Coming up
1: on higher ground, we'll be taking a ferry over to Fire Island.
0: A skinny barrier island that stretches 32 miles offshore and protects that bay.
1: Before we leave, the ferry station itself is home to the headquarters of the Fire Island National Seashore, the federal agency that monitors the island's wilderness.
10: big part of our mission is to... Um, you know, preserve these places for future generations.
1: Jordan Raphael is a park biologist. Using good old science, he helps inform decisions on how to best maintain the wilderness on Fire Island, which includes a unique place called the Sunken Forest.
10: It's primarily dominated by American holly. Peak recruitment occurred in the early to mid 1800s, and we have uh, some. Uh, dating back to the late 1700s that still persists in the sunken forest.
1: And the sunken forest is open for the public to enjoy. About a mile and a half of elevated boardwalk takes you through a canopy of these squiggly trees. They kind of look like something out of Dr. Seuss.
10: But the sunken forest, um, for lack of a better way to say it, is sinking. And there's a lot of these low elevated sections of, of sunken forest that... Um, are really being impacted by sea level rise.
0: The trees are protected on the ocean side by a double sand dune system. So the forest is sunken behind the dunes. But sea level rise is making this natural process more difficult.
10: What we used to have there at one time was this nice salt marsh that was was a buffer area between the sunken forest and the Great South Bay. That's all eroded away. And now the, the trees are right up against the edge of the bay.
0: That means waves wash over the uninhabited sections slowly rolling sand into the bay and drowning the sunken forest.
1: They also erode the natural barrier that Fire Island provides against rising tide and violent storms. But for now, thanks in part
0: to human intervention, it's still here. And one of Long Island's most popular spots for summer fun. So from Jordan's headquarters, we hop on a ferry.
1: This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM, American Public Media.
0: Welcome back to Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM American Public Media.
1: And I'm J.D. Allen. We're on a ferry to Fire Island, a 32-mile barrier island off the coast of New York. The inhabited stretch of it is about seven miles long, but just a couple of blocks wide. It's essentially a big pile of sand with a whole lot of development.
0: The ferry drops us off in the community of Ocean Beach.
1: Most people are walking around in swimsuits with ice cream cones in hand. Kids are barefoot. Off the main road, they hop on their bikes and zip down side streets to the beach.
0: There are no cars on the island other than emergency vehicles. When the National Seashore was created back in the 60s, they mandated Fire Island be roadless to protect the natural beauty. But for now, we're headed inside to beat the heat.
11: I've been here now for 50 years. Yeah, you were just a visitor, and then you stayed. That's it. I got off the boat and didn't get back on again.
0: Jim Mallett used to be a dock worker in London. Decades ago, he came to Fire Island for a date.
11: A foggy May day, and we came over on the ferry, and uh, we went up to the beach here, and suddenly, the, you know, the way the sun burns through that early morning mist, suddenly the sun shone, and I just couldn't believe where it was. It was just Crazy.
1: The date didn't work out, but Jim stayed, and now he's the mayor of Ocean Beach.
0: It's known for its nightlife, hotels, waterfront restaurants, and miles of beachfront. And thousands of summer tourists allow full-time Fire Island residents—just a few hundred of them—to survive year-round.
11: And that's the thing. This place survives. Everybody survived Everybody that works here, the infrastructure here for restaurants and and, and kids' camps and fire departments and all the rest of the stuff that makes a community is uh, is June, July and August. And in order for everybody all these people that are invested here with family most of these restaurants are family-owned restaurants and the families are there and they've they've always been there.
1: Jim owns a bar here in Ocean Beach too, the Albatross. Tourists stopping in are usually more concerned with sun and surf than they are with
0: climate change. But for the people who make a living out here, the threat of sea level rise is imminent.
1: So the people who live here, the full timers, the ones who come into your bar and they and they talk to you and they see you, you know, do they?
11: Are they aware yeah. of what's going on? That's a good question.
1: You just give them a drink and
11: there you go. The conversation starts. But I think most people, are, you know, a lot of people out here are Highly educated people, and I think that, uh, you know, not that they sit around and fret about every single day when are we going to sink?
0: And it's less than a mile between the bayside and the ocean, so rising sea levels have an immediate impact.
11: I feel like King Canute keeping the, keeping the waves back. You know, you sit there on the throne and tell the waves to go back, and the people behind you say, Come on, you're not working hard enough.
1: Fire Islanders are used to dealing with some extreme weather, but Superstorm Sandy was different in that for the first time in years,
0: residents were forced to evacuate the island. Jim points to a map on the wall to show us just how much water came through. So the bay came up to here. Oh,
1: jeez.
11: Yeah, just about here.
1: It basically cut it in half.
11: More than half. It didn't... Scare me, you know. I didn't falter, you know. I said, Okay, what's the first thing we got to do? Let's we got to protect this place from fire, so we've got to disconnect every gas tank that's in town. Everything here is LP gas, propane gas. Let's get that done, let's button up the houses, you know. And it was one thing after another. And then people wanted to come back here, which was a pretty daunting thought. People would just get back on the boat and, uh, and come out of here because everything was flooded, everything was broken. Everything was flattened. Yeah.
1: The water came through, and in, uh, in many places, it didn't even look like
11: someone could have lived here before. Yeah. Uh, and that's true. But we had thousands of people who wanted to get back here to their property, to their, to their houses, yeah. And we wouldn't let them back on, there was a curfew here.
0: And to Jim, when retreat really isn't an option on this narrow strip of sand, the only way to go is up. Just like Freeport, Ocean Beach was given millions in taxpayer dollars to help rebuild and raise downtown.
11: So that's why everything is is raised up now. When we did our new ferry terminal, which is right here, everything there, all the plugs, all the electric.
1: And there's millions of dollars left to go.
0: Slash barkeep and step outside for a tour. There are more beach bags and wide-brimmed sun hats than we can count.
1: Steve Broadgum is our guide. He's the village administrator.
0: He rolls up in a golf cart. No cars here, remember?
12: It's great working here on Fire Island. They um, they need uh, my expertise, and um, I offer them at twenty-four-seven. At so. Uh.
0: We pass by a summer camp, a massive pile of bikes at the gate. What a perfect place to be a kid.
12: It ha- you know, it's right on the water. The camp has sailboats, and you can see it's full here with kids. They ride their bikes to camp from, from the surrounding areas in the, in the village. You oh, see they get their sailboats. They have docks here. Um, this is a great source of community pride.
1: As we continue our ride around, we recognize a place we came across in our research. Rachel's big shop
0: we first saw Rachel's on an interactive federal NOAA map that demonstrates sea level rise over time you click through the timeline and can see that the water will eventually be above their front door Rachel's front door is now raised at least eight feet above sea level
12: even a, a windy high tide you're going to get it um, and it's it's a problem and we're going to make it better um, but the government is behind this project um, and is supporting it financially. So
1: I mean, they sure should if uh, they put uh,
12: Rachel's right here, which is... Yeah, Rachel's uh, just raised uh, theirs so and encouraging the others, but... Um,
1: well, if they're going to put it on a NOAA map, they sh- they better raise it, huh?
12: Uh, well, it's, you know, they're getting killed with the insurance. That's a driving force. Um, I, I, I guess the village board could do something like that, but It could be a huge hardship for some of these people to force the downtown to raise all their houses or, or all their buildings.
1: The village has also had to build up the ferry terminal so hundreds of thousands of tourists can reach its downtown and Fire Island beaches.
0: And it's not just storms that they have to worry about. Steve says the flooding is becoming worse and more frequent every year. Even a full moon is enough to create a big problem.
1: The things that people, all these people that are here, I mean, there are a tremendous amount of people here that are enjoying their summer, but we're looking at the things that people are
12: probably the least interested in when they're here. It's like where they go to the bathroom, how they They drink clean water. And all the millions, tens of millions of dollars. You can't see it. I mean, you see it in the boathouse, but you you don't see it, you know, in the sewer plant. um, And you don't see it underground. Um, And that uh, is, you know, it's not politically uh, appealing, but the mayor has done a great job.
1: For the people who live on Fire Island, water is literally coming up under their feet. I was going to say, Steve, this is where I saw the water, right here.
12: Oh,
5: yes.
12: (laughs) Yes, this is uh, right. The stormwater runoff is going to start right here and go east all the way to the sewer plant. And um, there we are going to make it a lot better. You know, you can't solve it.
1: Still, saving this place means everything to full-time residents. Like Susie Goldhirsch.
12: You know,
5: we're standing here, there's the wind, there's the sun, there's the ocean, there's the sand. It's so uncomplicated. Her connection to this island runs
0: deep. Her great-grandmother first arrived here in the late 1800s. She built a house, it's
5: still there. Uh, It's on the high ground. She was smart, smart lady. And we're now in our sixth generation of people who, no matter where we go in the world, this is, where we, this is where we come back to, this is home.
1: She's actually the president of the Fire Island Association, which works to protect the interests of the 17 communities here.
5: I have an opportunity because of the, my history on the island, my familiarity with the mainland, my knowledge of the environment, and the jurisdictions, the mosaic of jurisdictions. I'm the right person at the right time to help Fire island, and I feel it's almost a moral responsibility.
1: You might as well be the mayor, by my take, because we're walking around and you're just saying hi to everybody.
5: Well, part of it, yes, part of it is that I know a lot of people, but the other part is that Fire Islanders say hello to Fire Islanders, you know? I mean... Everybody loves it here. Everybody's happy to be here, and you're happy to say hello to anybody you see on the walk.
0: And when each community has their own very
5: strong sense of pride, that can be a challenge. What I try to do is I try to find the balance, try to find the common ground where we can all agree. And as I said, where we all agree is that we love this island. We know the island is imperiled. Susie wants to introduce us to some friends of hers, so
0: she's got some bikes for us to borrow, and we can make our way over.
1: Gotta be honest, it's been a few years
0: since I've ridden a bike, but I managed. We zigzag through a grid of stone streets. Its names are alphabetical, and only two tight roads run east to west. We arrive at Luke and Lisa You're Kaufman's welcome house.
7: Welcome to our hot, sticky house.
5: <laughs> <laughs> right. Hi, Hi, how, how are, are you? you? I haven't seen you in forever. I know. I know. I try to... I hear your voice a lot. I know, in those meetings. <laughs> Hi, Luke. Hi. Um, here's our intrepid team. That's hey, Jay, how are you? This is
1: Luke. Luke this manages the ferry Luke. company that got is here today.
13: I mean, this this was our family home. My grandfather built this place for peanuts. There was nothing but beech grass for four blocks around here. He
1: raised a family
13: here. This place means a lot to them. I summered here in, from birth until the mid-'70s. And I moved out here year round in the seventies. Water skiing, a lot of fishing, a lot of clamming, which uh, you know the clams have disappeared from these waters, and uh, it was just a, a great place to be. You know, uh, you were barefoot for uh, for three months a year.
1: Being with what your job is and growing up here, I, I bet you're pretty you're pretty good with the water.
13: Yeah, I, uh, between having a, a family boat um, growing up and uh, and Working the the bay on the ferries, um, I've I've been on the Great South Bay my entire life. Yeah, you
0: know. and his daughter is actually interning with Jordan Raphael over at the National Seashore. I
13: mean, it's it's not just a resort. I mean, a lot of people live here and make their livelihoods here. And although a lot of it is weather dependent, uh, in in high season we are busy all the time.
1: Living a short walk to the ocean requires round the clock maintenance.
7: Saltwater with anything, your vehicles, um, your bikes. <laughs> anything metal, anything, no, just, just the wear and tear from living so close. To- but it's
13: not just that it's, it's the taxes. This community has very expensive dues to pay now, which, uh, which years ago, the dues were a hundred dollars a year. And, uh, the dues now are so incredibly out of sight. Uh, I mean, realistically, I can't afford to live in the town that I grew up in.
0: And then there's the threat of hurricanes, which is always in the back of their minds.
5: I lose sleep every night. Literally, I lose sleep every night
7: thinking about that, because it's our only home.
1: The Federal Park Service mandates Fire Island can't put in any hardened structures, like a seawall for protection.
13: They have to work with the natural process.
0: And Luke agrees, sometimes you have to fight nature with nature.
13: I'm not a coastal geologist. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time looking at this, and I find that none of that
0: works. And so to prepare for hurricanes, the community created a tax district to fund the replenishment of the sand dunes.
13: We were doing beach scraping where you take a very small amount of elevation and over 100 feet wide you can make some pretty big dunes, and we did that ourselves.
1: Luke's community actually did pretty well during Superstorm Sandy, Thanks to man-made dunes 20 feet
13: above sea level. Pushed up white, clean white sugar sand, and we planted the heck out of it with American beachgrass, grass. And it worked really well. Thanks to
1: some ingenuity and a whole lot of teamwork, which Susie points out is the key to survival out here.
5: People who live out here year-round are expert at bartering, you know, other services or stuff, right? You have topsoil. I have two-by-fours, you know, we will make a deal. Um, so it's, it's, it transcends personality, and it becomes we're all in this together.
1: So working together to barter and build back sand dunes on Fire Island.
0: Paying taxes to help raise homes in Freeport and Ocean Beach so coastal communities can continue to survive. Or considering retreat from the shore in Montauk. The imminent threat of climate change has prompted a lot of different responses. But Luke's made
1: something clear. Protecting the homes, communities, and beaches are paramount. And he's got a message for those who might feel as if the taxpayer dollars spent
13: here are literally going to blow away in the wind. My opinion is a bit different on that. Um, The first thing is, is that if you look at other places in the United States, like where these dams are failing on the Mississippi, you're not telling all of these people to abandon their homes hundreds of miles around just like now with the west with these wildfires uh they're they're not moving they're going to be smarter about how they build uh, their next home but it's with this it's so much bigger and the cost of replenishment for this beach and what it does for long island is i think tenfold whether whether Fire Island there's gonna be a benchmark storm where no matter how much sand you put on the beach, Fire Island may disappear in one storm. It's possible. Okay. The likelihood of that is less than than what's
10: happening now by death by a thousand cuts.
0: But no matter what, Mother Nature is gonna do her thing.
10: In fifty to a hundred years, we have models that suggest that Fire Island could be a pearl of islands by that time you know, due to, due to climate change and sea level rise. So there's no way to know, for sure. But I think we can say it's gonna look a lot different than it does right now.
0: This string of pearls that Jordan Raphael talks about, it's much like you're standing on the beach with your feet in the water.
1: Picture this, the tide comes in and washes over your toes. You dig into the sand, you're not going anywhere.
0: This very well could be the future for some people who refuse to move from the coast.
1: The water will rush around you and pull the sand from your heels. A pool of water forms beneath the soles of your feet as you stand on your tippy toes to get to higher ground.
0: If you don't move, you can stand there for a while, but eventually the sand gives way.
1: And if you're unsteady on your feet, you may be knocked over by the waves. The hope for the future is that there are people around you to help you back up. Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Garonne and me, JD Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones and assistance from Ann Lopez. Dave Eisenstatter is our digital editor, graphic art by Joshua Joseph. Kelly Hillsmucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Music for the show is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. This special was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. Thank you for taking this journey with
0: us.
4: It's a game, don't you think? While well, you're looking at me, you look away. I can stitch every word to your lips so you'll know just a thing to say to me.
0: Sew it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent thing, go. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand? For a love in the sand Like a leaf inside the wind
4: And you go where it tells you to go But you never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all
11: I find that we are all the same. We all just play a game and never show just who we are. Like actors, you're a star. You shine far brighter than the rest. Among us, you're the best. But when the show comes to an end, who will watch you, Brits? And you need a stage to light your life. You never show your strife. Don't you think it's a little strange? Your face just stays the same. I don't know if you've got a heart. You don't show who you are to me. You're just another
0: name. Higher Ground is distributed by APM, American Public Media.